Hello and welcome to Called to Queer, where we hold space for the queer Mormon women, gender queer, and intersex experiences. I'm Kate, and my pronouns are she, they. And I'm Colette, and my pronouns are she, her. Today we're talking with Chelsea Gibbs, and we're so excited to have this conversation. But before we jump into that, we wanted to start off by seeing what brought us queer joy this week. So Colette, what brought you queer joy this week? Yesterday, I went up to this picnic area in the mountains. Bergen from Womb Circle and Channing from Faithful Feminists created this thing called Nourishing Kin Circle. And this particular one was to celebrate Beltane. And I didn't know anyone that was going besides I knew I would know Channing and Bergen. And I got there and I recognized someone from a queer woman support group I did. And so it was really nice to connect with her in person and just be fully myself. And there were a couple other people that I knew from social media or a couple in person. It was just so nice. A couple of them are queer women and just having that sense of community with them as well as a bigger sense of community with the other about 30 women were there. And that was just really cool for me. That's awesome. I have to insert right now that I was considering seeing all of that stuff on social media to be my queer joy for today, but I'm not going to do that now. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, you were actually there. That sounds amazing. It sounds like it was really cool. I messaged Channing and Bergen after, and I was like, I really felt like I was leaving sacred ground when I left that picnic ground. Like, it was really neat. I was thinking, I'm like, what's a more feminist analogy? But I was just thinking, it's like how Moses must have felt coming down from Mount Sinai after talking to the burning bush and being like, now I have to deal with like real world crap and all these people's problems. (laughs) Like, It was really good. Yeah, that sounds amazing. What about you, Kate? What was your queer joy? So I actually have had so much queer joy this week, so much queer joy. Just I'm just getting to a place where the sounds, I don't know how it's going to come across, but just being by myself has just been more and more easy and relaxed that I don't need as much outside validation for really much of anything. And that's like a new point for me. And I know that I've shared this as my queer joy for a while now that it's just new and exciting. But in particular, that leaves you space to invite people in and also celebrate the people that you have invited in to be in that space with you. And just getting ready for this interview, I love Chelsea. Chelsea and I have worked together a little bit now with Affirmation and some stuff has been going on in Affirmation that has just really pumped me up and been It's been very exciting this week in particular in in helping people connect throughout the world, including just like these remote places that it's like, oh, we have a chance and an opportunity to meet people who understand our experience wherever they are in the world. And that is just really cool. So it's just been a week of that. I'm here for you constantly, like every week, if you want to talk about your queer joy of being more at home with yourself, I am so here for it. That is amazing. And I'm really excited for this conversation with Chelsea as well. Thank you. All right. So Chelsea. Yes. My queer joy this week, (laughs) kind of actually related to what you're talking about, Kate, with connecting to people around the globe. Through your queerness, I recently joined a Discord server with a group of queer Marvel women fans, 
from around the oh, world. Oh, that's awesome. Um, including your neck of the woods, Kate, where you currently are. And we'll just be on these like hours long calls and like streaming movies together and sharing work. And I realized it's the first group of queer women I've been friends with since I came out who had no ties to Mormonism whatsoever. And I love my queer Mormon community so much. There's no replacing that ever. But there was something so exciting to me about realizing I don't have to like be really precious about my language or stuff like that or how overtly lusty I may. I don't know. It's just like there's no <laughs> like I'm, I'm not having to rein myself in as much as I feel like I have to sometimes in Mormon spaces. And that's been really freeing and helped me realize things I didn't even know were inside me. So we will learn more about this, but just jumping into your story just a little bit, you have background in film studies. And so it's like very much part of your identity to want to talk with people about movies and film as well. So from this makes sense to me that you would connect with people who want to tap into that part of your identity as well as the people who want to tap into your Mormon identity. And I'm very excited to hear that's happening for you. Thank you. (laughs) And I have to say, I relate to the connecting with queer people outside Mormonism, too. I remember the first time I dated someone who didn't have an LDS background. And again, I love my Mormons. Obviously, we have a podcast. Like My (laughs) world is Mormon queer people. But it was really refreshing for me to talk to someone who didn't grow up Mormon and didn't have the same shame around her sexuality. That was really interesting to me, too. So thank you. I thought that would be intimidating. And it wasn't. It's like, oh, they don't really understand. But it's like, that's okay. It's okay. We don't have to overlap in every way. That's all right. Yeah. That's awesome. So are you ready for your queer in 90 seconds, 60 seconds, queer Mormon story, whatever we're calling it? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yes, I can. I can dive right in or try. (laughs) Again, no time limit. We just want to get to know you. So I grew up in New York. I'm the youngest of two kids, raised Mormon. And what I really loved about our ward in New York is it was pretty small. So everybody was pretty close. And my father was the bishop the whole time I was in the youth program. And he was very beloved as a bishop. And my older brother was outed when he was in high school. It was a pretty harrowing experience, and I did not react the way I wish I had. I was not, I don't think I was ever like openly homophobic or aggressive or anything like that, but I was dealing with a ton of internalized homophobia, and I just turned to the church to sucker me through that. And I was extremely close to like my youth leaders and the, the young women and stuff like that, and just kind of buried myself more and more in the church, which to me felt supportive and encouraging and hopeful in contrast to sort of the evanescence that my brother was listening to, or like the hot topic appointed wardrobe <laughs> and stuff like that. But I was like, oh, this is freaking me out. so I went to BYU my first semester at BYU was the autumn of prop eight which was difficult my roommate was a Californian and every Sunday over the pulpit 
you know, a member of the bishopric would hammer home how important it was for all the Californians in the ward to phone bank back home to tell people to vote against gay marriage. And it came up in most of my classes and I was very stressed out. And if I ever talked about it, which was not a lot because I was afraid of being pegged as too sympathetic or something, I kind of propped myself up behind the shield of my gay brother and just being like, I'm sad because of my brother, not definitely not because of me. (laughs) Although that was certainly true. Like I was really hurt and confused for my brother, but I just kind of suppressed any crushes that I had. I did have a pretty serious one by the time I was a senior at BYU, but I just didn't deal with it. I went to grad school in California a couple years after I graduated from BYU and was surrounded by like a queer cohort, which I'd never experienced before, like openly queer students just living their lives. And I fell, I fell in love for the first time in my adult life with a friend who was a woman. And that kind of set me on my journey to have to come out because my feelings for her were so strong. I just knew I didn't want to, I didn't want to ignore them for the rest of my life. I saw Frozen and that, that made me want to let it go, let go. <laughs> Literally, I can pinpoint it. It was like, okay, this is the joy that I want. That's the joy that I want. And if I, I was haunted by the idea of dying one day after decades in the closet and like God saying to me, why didn't you pursue relationships with women? It would have been fine. Like, I And I just, the thought of that made me question so much. And I slowly, step by step, foot by foot, started inching out of the closet. But I came out of it on the other side, openly, proudly, happily. But that's not, I mean, you have a lot more to tell, but maybe we can dive into how you came back to BYU because that wasn't the end of your BYU experience. That's true. I graduated with my master's and I had an incredible faculty behind me at BYU in the theater media arts department. So they were pretty chill. And my mentor there really wanted me to come take her place on the staff. She was waiting for me to get my PhD. And after I'd got my master's, she and another professor said, hey, why don't you come teach here for the summer and, you know, get that experience. So I left at the opportunity, albeit with some reservations, because by that point, I was mostly, I was partially out. I was like one foot in the closet, one out. I got ecclesiastical endorsement from my YSA bishop by being very open with him. And at that point, I had not dated or really been in a relationship. So I hadn't, you know, quote unquote, done anything to warrant getting in trouble, I guess, with the church. So I was able to teach there. And I lasted just that one summer semester and had a great time in some ways. But that was the summer that same-sex marriage was legalized here. And I didn't feel like I could celebrate it. I was like, what if one of my students looks me up on Facebook or something and sees me being supportive and reports me, you know, and I realized I would have to dodge that my whole life if I taught here. I would have to lie, you know, and I don't want to do that. I don't want to lie to keep this job. And I also don't want to have to like censor myself on social media or whatever else. Like I just want to be able to be me. And (laughs) at the end of that semester, my mentor asked me, you know, she was checking in like, how's it going? You think this is going to work? It seems like it's a good class. And I said, I really wish I could stay. And she was very concerned, you know, it's just like, is something wrong? Are you having trouble with the church? And I said, I just don't think, I don't think I'm straight. And her reaction at first was, oh, oh, (laughs) Mm -hmm. 
She was very happy for me to have come to this realization, but then realized that the reality meant I wouldn't be able to be there. And that took a very long time for me to get over, like that realization of this is a job being offered to me almost on a silver platter and I can't, I can't take it. I can't take it. And I think there's an opportunity cost every time you come out. You don't always know what that's going to be. For me, it was this job and it can be much you know, more dramatic and much worse, but it's a shame because I think that faculty, I know that faculty wouldn't have cared and they would have embraced me and supported me. But at the end of the day, they don't make the rules. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's, you're getting at a part of the BYU story that's really challenging and difficult is that there are people who want to support, there are people who want to make changes and those people have a certain amount of power, but then they ultimately don't have all of the power. And that's really hard. Can I just share the first time I ever saw you and met you? So (laughs) I don't mean to hijack your time or anything, but I think because your story, this story, you spoke about this story in particular, BYU, and it had a big impact on me. I was living in Southern California. We were both living in Southern California for that brief moment that we overlapped there for just a little bit. I showed up at an affirmation conference. I like didn't know anything about affirmation. <laughs> I didn't know. I didn't know where to go to find my people. I just knew I needed to find queer Mormons that I was in a bad place and I needed to find queer Mormons. And it just so happened that that affirmation was organizing this conference in Southern California or the LA chapter. And I showed up not knowing anybody, not knowing a soul. Didn't even, I had to like register and like pay on site. I didn't know what I was doing at all. And I sat down and this person gets up and tells this amazing story about for coming out and about BYU and just you were so confident in that story for somebody who was brand new, who needed a friend, who needed to see themselves in somebody else. Like that was you for me. I think I can't remember if you spoke right before or right after Tom Christofferson, but both of those talks to me were just like home. It was like I found home. So Chelsea, you've just had an incredible impact on me. And I'm very grateful for that. I'm very grateful for that moment and for the opportunity to talk about how difficult BYU was for you. Oh my gosh. That's incredibly sweet of you to say. Thank you. I I don't know if I even knew you were at that conference. I think I just remember meeting you at like the smaller get togethers there, but that kind of made me think of the fact that I wanted to thank you both for starting this podcast, because I remember coming when I was first looking out into trying to come out and finding queer Mormon stories, as I'm sure you're well aware, is like 98% of those stories are cis gay men. And then the rest are like from allies. Like I would get all excited clicking on a thumbnail of a woman's story. And then she's like, my gay brother, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, (laughs) None of you are gay. Come on. You know, because again, I know it's come up on this podcast because the church is so gendered. Our experiences are unique and it was so helpful and gratifying for me every time I found somebody in the queer Mormon community who was like me. And so it's just so valuable and wonderful what you were doing. So thank you for letting me step in for a minute. (laughs) It's really cool how 
this community just perpetuates itself, helps one another, encourages one another. It's also, there's actually like a big BYU film scene queer people group of y'all, right? Isn't there? I'm sure there probably is. I know there was a couple years ago, there were those kids who made like a documentary about being gay at BYU. Like my window of time, Colette, we may have overlapped somewhere gay life at BYU was really underground like the honor code had changed the year before I went to be that like you could say you were gay as long as you didn't quote-unquote act on it and that was supposed to be the big like generous change was like now you can identify that way but of course as we are continuing to see just because a policy wording may change that's not going to change the attitude overnight and in my case it didn't change the four years I was there I met two people who were out the whole time I was at BYU and I was in the theater media arts department like that's that's saying something and it's been very really exciting and amazing to see kids starting to be more vocal and I know a big part of that is because they now they know there are people there in their corner even though there are obviously so many who are very aggressively not. It makes such a difference just to know for sure there are people there who will have your back. That's something I could not envision at all while I was there. Yeah. And I think that we're about the same age. We came up at about the same time thinking about what it was like. I think it's hard for folks to remember how hard it was just in general for queer people growing up at a time when we did when There was a little bit more visibility in the media, but overall, there was strong pushback. I feel like what's going on now with trans issues was what I remember feeling like growing to high school and being in high school. But you're in New York. What's the experience with growing up Mormon in New York? Uh, I thought you were going to ask about being gay in New York. Because I was going to say when I was a teenager, it was still very socially acceptable to be homophobic, even in a blue place. Honestly, the Mormon aspect in New York was not that bad. Like I said, I kind of liked the closeness of our ward, just by virtue of the fact that there were like eight young women instead of 50. It was like, (laughs) you really got to know and be like, I'm still good friends with a lot of people from that ward. There was one other Mormon in my school, and we were very good friends. Neither of us are active anymore. Uh, A lot of people in my youth are not active (laughs) anymore now that I think about it. But yeah, I found good friends in school who never gave me a a hard time. I found friends in grad school who didn't give me a hard time. I thought for sure, like going to grad school in California, people were going to give me a bad time about Mormonism. But they were like, I remember a guy running across a party one time when he thought I was going to drink something alcoholic to be like, it's hard cider, don't drink it. You know, like, that's so funny i had that same experience going to grad school in california i was so nervous to tell people i was mormon and i felt so embraced about my mormonness i didn't yeah like i didn't even want to talk about it but it was like when people find out you went to byu it's you know there you go (laughs) (laughs) i yeah it's it it's what i it's what i know it was uh 6 a.m. seminary, all that good stuff. (laughs) So just continuing your story, Kate knows you way better than I do. So I'm just getting to know you along with the listeners. So after you had to turn down that job at BYU, what happened for you next? I kind of just spun my wheels in LA for a while. I don't want to say I was traumatized because it's a very dramatic word, but 
I loved being an educator and I loved teaching, but just the pain of having to not be able to do that thing I really wanted to do in the place where I really felt I could make a difference. I was just like, I can't do this. I don't want to teach anywhere. I don't want to, I don't want to get that PhD. And I wound up ultimately working for a film archive, which I do really like, but yeah, it was really rough. And it was a long period of being like, am I feeling too sorry for myself, you know, and just building frustration. And that's when I especially kind of really started to throw myself into affirmation and finding other people who could relate to what I was going through and figuring that out. And it was around that same time that I really got my heart broken. This, this friend that I had fallen for, who she was not LDS, but she, was a, she is currently also still a Baptist, and ultimately told me, I'm, I'm not gay. I was never gay. I prayed and God took away this, these feelings. So that was... Wow. Yeah, that was really hard. And it was kind of this bad couple of years of trying to get over their having to leave BYU and, and then having to get over this first, you know, really serious love who, and I understand her need to do what she did, but it, it still really hurts. And I tried to go on dates and stuff and I just couldn't get over her. And the other problem was realizing like the church had never, I had no vocabulary for even asking girls out and no physical vocabulary for figuring out what do I want? What am I, like Colette, in your episode, you talked about demisexuality. And that's something that really resonates with me as well. And I had a, a really good queer Mormon friend in LA. We came out at the same time and he ultimately got very much into like the club scene and all that, which is, you know, that's fine. That's what he liked and wanted to do. But he was getting the impression that because I wasn't doing those things, I must have still been holding on to some sort of religious repression <laughs> or something. And I'm like, no, I, I don't know. Am I? I don't know. And it just took me a while to realize, no, that's just not, that isn't really how I'm built. But I, it's because I was closeted my entire youth. I missed that window of it being socially acceptable to be innocent, you know? And, <laughs> and I, I still kind of miss that sometimes. But I think you're touching on something that is exactly what we wanted to get at with this podcast. And I think that is an experience that people expect you to have, that people expect others to have when they come out as queer. And I think even... Latter-day Saints sometimes expect that from the queer community, not really expecting us to want to have romantic right. relationships, yeah. to go on dates, to do all the normal dating things. They think it's often just about some sort of sexual need when actually there's like a lot of things that go into this. So I appreciate you talking about that because I think it's really important that you bring up these differences in the way people see dating. And unfortunately, I mean, it's one of those things I was like, okay, we're maybe we're getting past that point as a larger culture, if not a Mormon culture. But then we get things like this Florida bill and people saying, don't talk to my kids about sex. And it's like, that's not what saying I have a girlfriend means. Like, that's not what, it, shut up. <laughs> Sorry, it's not a very, that's not a, that's not a constructive thing to say, but can be frustrating. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Would it be okay to dive more into 
that relationship, what it felt like, what, like how you came to recognize that you had fallen for somebody and all those things, especially maybe as you're figuring out what it means to be demisexual and all that. Yeah, I, I didn't really, I didn't know demisexuality. Actually, she taught me that phrase. Eventually, we started texting. She was the first internet friend I ever gave my phone number to. And I became like addicted to my phone. I used to hate texting. It drove me crazy. But I was like, I needed my phone plugged in at all times so that it wouldn't die. So I wouldn't miss a text from her. And like, we had started using pet names, like jokingly, and then they just made their way into our normal conversation. And, and I still remember this text she sent me after a few months of this, and she said, do we ever confuse you? And I don't really remember what I said. I just remember her asking, do we confuse you? And I couldn't stop thinking about that. And I was realizing, I really like this person a lot. I really love her a lot, I think. Oh no, what am I going to do? And I was just determined not to think about it. I was determined not to share it or speak about it, even as this relationship had progressed to like when I was starting grad school. Anyway, I had determined never to share this shameful secret with anyone. I was like, I'm just going to die in the closet one day and nobody will ever know. And it's fine. And I'll get over these feelings. And it's what I said. I saw Frozen. It's so dumb, but I saw Frozen. Elsa has that song. It's at the beginning and she's singing, don't let them in. Don't let them see be the good girl you always have to be one wrong move and everyone will know or something like that. And I was just like, okay, this is fine. I'm relating a little hard. It's totally okay. And then she gets to that song. She gets to let it go. And I know everybody like hates that song now, but I still remember hearing it for the first time and seeing it for the first time and just being washed over with this. I I really want to be that happy. I want to be able to like let go of this and be that happy and this is so nerdy, but like it was a it was a special screening and like the director, the writer was there and I ran into her outside the building afterwards and I just wanted to be like, I love your movie. And I ended up like crying and being like, your movie's going to help so many people. And she's crying and was like, thank you. But I really felt that way. And like two weeks later, I called this friend and I told her how I felt. And I mostly did that because I was really sure that she felt the same way. That was like the main thing that gave me confidence. And I remember thinking if the Mormon church is right. And I die and God is like, you messed up outer darkness for you or whatever. Like, I just thought I would rather be happy with her in this lifetime now than worry about whatever's going to happen to me later. And yeah, it's a real roller coaster. <laughs> I, I'm sorry. That, it's, that's tough. And to have her right when you told her, that's when she said, I don't have these feelings. God took them away. Or I, what happened there? That was a while later. She, what was difficult for her was not having a support system in place. She never had any organization like affirmation for, again, as a Baptist. And I think that was really crucial for me, was having a queer space that was religiously familiar to me. She never had something like that to feel comfortable in. And she had a lot of concerns about her family's reaction to things because family, her family is everything to her. Like she, I think almost felt betrayed when I said like, I had a gay brother, you know, that my family was fine with because she's like, well, that, okay, so then you know, I don't have that. And so it was, it was kind of a rocky, weird, tenuous time. But I remember the first time I actually met her in person. That's the crazy thing. Like I said all this to her before we had ever even met. That's the most, that's the gayest thing ever I know. But like- <laughs> Way to hit the stereotype. 
<laughs> Wait, can we pause there? Because I think there might be people who are listening that don't know the stereotype, that don't recognize that often women and people who are assigned female at birth fall in love with people and don't recognize it until they're in the midst of of being in love with somebody. This is a trope because it happens. So it's a really important part of the story to say, I hadn't even met her yet. Yeah, because we're socialized to be more, like it's more quote unquote normal for us to be friendly and intimate with each other in ways that like say it's not considered acceptable for cis men to be, right? So we have that. But just talking to her on the phone for hours, which again, I've never did with anybody like even my best friends I'm like okay it's been an hour we can be done now but like with her it's no I just want to tell you literally everything about my life and I want to hear literally everything about your entire life so and we had we met and we went to Disneyland actually that was the second day that we met and I held her hand the entire day and I just remember just the explosion of butterflies that I got like just holding her hand or like her resting her head on my shoulder, you know, when she was getting tired on like a ride or something. And it was just like, I had never felt anything. It was not even a kiss. Like it was just that it just knocked me over. And it was just like, Oh my gosh, this is the most amazing, greatest thing I've ever experienced. <laughs> like, You know, at that point, it was just like game over. I could never go back after that. Just can't go back to the closet yeah. after that. So the episode that's coming out tomorrow, we talk a little bit more about demisexuality. And Kate said something really interesting to me about how they identify as demi. And it was an aha moment for me saying, I'm going to misquote it, but basically the idea that people they used to be interested in have no appeal to them anymore because they don't have the emotional connection. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is why I have a hard time getting over people. (laughs) (laughs) Because I fit into the lesbian stereotype of staying friends with exes. (laughs) And then I still have that emotional connection. And so what was that identifying as Demi? I don't know if that kind of resonates with you as well. But the having this really intense emotional connection and friendship, pseudo relationship, and then or pseudo romantic relationship. And then what? Like, how do you work through that? How do you get over something like that? And I totally get this is too personal. It's okay. I'll give it a try. To be honest, I don't think I handled it in the healthiest way. To give her credit, she tried really hard to make it as painless as possible for me, which sounds cruel after what I said she said, uh, which she did say, and just still was dealing with a lot of internalized stuff that got taken out on me. And I, kind of before either of us knew what we were talking about, was just very like frazzled and she was like I understand if you need space if you need to you know not talk to me as much and that's okay and part of me was concerned because I knew she didn't have a lot of friends and I didn't want I didn't want to just abandon her just because she didn't want this relationship anymore you know like I I didn't want to be that person but I was also just still so hung up on her that I was like, I'll take anything, you know, and I was desperate not to lose that connection. And we actually still talk. We are still friends. But I really wish I had listened to her advice to be like, it's okay to step away for a minute. Like, I thought she was just trying to be selfless. But she was also looking out for me. And I I wish I had listened to her. I think it would have helped me. It would have spared me a lot of time spent mourning 
because I was still, it, it made it kind of, it made that like tenuousness stretch out longer than it needed to because I was trying so hard to make something work, but yeah, it was messy. You talked about not having the language or vocabulary or the ability to think about how to date somebody. You also <laughs> don't have the language and ability to figure out how to go through a breakup with somebody, especially when people aren't able to be out to everyone, whether you're able to be out to everybody, whether she's able to be out to everybody, that adds so much more, such a complicated layer to that, that we don't know how to deal with a breakup. That's so true. Yeah, I don't really see it represented a lot. What I do see a lot or I saw it a lot in older kind of lesbian movies, was this big dramatic, come out of the closet or I'm breaking up with you, which I hate. I'm like, I don't do that, you know? (laughs) Agreed, agreed. Because there are nicer ways to have that conversation of just being like, you know, we're in two different places maybe or something like that. But I'm really sympathetic to people who are trapped and feel like they can't be out or come out and that it's not something to be ashamed of. It's... As long as you're being honest with yourself, I think is the most important thing. Be honest with yourself. I did feel very hurt when she said she successfully prayed away the gay, which is not the phrase that she used. She actually said she didn't like that phrase because it sounded dismissive of God's power. That was kind of the first time I was really like, I don't think I want to believe in God anymore if you think he did this. Because I had been working really hard to keep that spiritual part of me alive. And I liked talking to her about it until I really didn't anymore. She accused me of lying about being a Christian when she found out I was Mormon. The only reason I had not spoken about being Mormon online was because I was at the time afraid of this account being tied back to me personally. So I was just like, that's one more little like obfuscation I can put up is to say I'm a Christian. But I I was totally blindsided by her accusing me of lying about that. I was like, I've talked about Jesus to you constantly. What can you say I'm not Christian? But yeah, that was a that was another tough part of that conversation was just I don't want to I don't want to believe in this God if this is what you really think he would do. That's really interesting, because it sounds like what you're talking about is you have this queer conversation layer that you have to communicate through and try to work through. But then you also have a mixed faith relationship where you're trying to work out what that means for the both of you. And neither one of those things is easy to deal with. And it comes with a lot of complicated conversations. Yes, it does. It did. (laughs) Definitely did. Changing topics a little bit, you talk about the importance of let it go as part of your queer journey. I I think Into the Unknown from Frozen 2 is another queer anthem. (laughs) With your background in film, media, theater, that sort of stuff, I'd love to just hear a discussion of some of these queer songs, themes, movies that have resonated with you, whether they were actually meant to be queer or not. I think this could be a really fun discussion. (laughs) <laughs> oh my gosh, Colette, there's so many. <laughs> so so before you get into this, Chelsea, I do have to say that I have sat through Chelsea's um, amazing five-minute TED Talk on queer movies, and I highly recommend it to everybody. <laughs> Wait, is there an official TED Talk? There needs to be one. Can we make this that? <laughs> oh my goodness, where are my notes? Now, I actually, the first thing that came to mind was She-Ra and the Princesses of Power which I think probably a lot of people didn't watch because it, well, a lot of adults probably didn't watch because it's a cartoon, but it's canonically very queer 
and also layered with religious symbolism and, and symbolism of religious trauma, which I was really not expecting. But it's an incredibly poignantly written show by a queer showrunner. So they really know what they're doing. They're really layering in so much. And it, it can be enjoyed by children and adults. And you get to see women kiss and like openly have crushes on each other and all of these things. And I remember watching it with my brother, like telling him how good and how gay it was. And he kept being surprised because he thought I was just it was going to just be like subtext. And every time something actually gay would happen, he'd be like, what? What? Like, this is real. I was like, I know it's really happening. It's so exciting. What year is that? That was just, it just ended in 2020. I think it was 2018 to 2020 on Netflix. Definitely worth a watch. Very fun, very gay and delightful. Fried Green Tomatoes, I mean, is another one. It's probably the only film history class at any university that has shown Fried Green Tomatoes. But I knew I couldn't rock the boat too much at BYU by showing something like super overtly gay. So I shared Fried Green Tomatoes, which is a classic example of queer subtext. Like we have this a novel with a explicitly lesbian relationship, which in order to be made into a successful mainstream Hollywood movie in the early 90s, you kind of like peel back just enough of that. Like they never kiss they don't kiss on the lips at least in that movie but it's so obviously a love story except to apparently a lot of straight people who are like this is such a great movie about <laughs> and you're like it's obviously a love story what's wrong with you so i mean i showed that to my kids and i i kind of chickened out of talking about the lesbian aspect but the next class when we were talking about the movie one of my kids brought it up and he was like so I was reading about this, and apparently the book was about lesbians. What are your thoughts? And then I later found out that this student was also gay. So I was like, oh, you were trying to force a conversation. Good for you. We awkwardly wended our way through that. But that's the other thing, though, Kate, that ties into those of us not realizing we're developing these feelings until we're, like, really deep into them. And it's it's not really the kind of story I think you see as much in movies and TV anymore. But, I mean, like, Xena is another great example of that, where they wanted to lean into a lesbian direction but couldn't because the network said they couldn't so it's like you have to just sort of leave these little clues and just really amp up this friendship and we we can tell the difference between people being friends and people being in love we know what the difference is because that's something you would hear a lot when it whether it comes to the oc or rizzolian isles or once upon a time or whatever it is where people are like can't women just be friends what's your why do you have to make everything gay and it's, we're not. It's just that we've become so accustomed to seeing our stories represented as these muted love stories. The, the roommates, the trope of roommates. And that this is a whole kind of revelation I had earlier this year about queer baiting. And Rosalie Isles was a prime example of queer bait, which is where a, a network or advertisers or whoever it is realizes wow, there's a big, for example, a big lesbian fan base for this show. This is a show that is geared toward a very, a more conservative, broader audience. So we're never actually going to make anything gay happen. But we can tease it a little bit in our advertising. We can maybe have a joke in an episode where they have to pretend they're on a date or something. And that will appease the lesbians. They'll freak out about it over Twitter or something. And it will also make sure that like our conservative base doesn't go away. And it occurred to me that like, I felt like the church 
was doing that same thing. They were queer baiting too. Because people who just are trying to be heard and make a space for themselves will take what they can get because that's what we're used to having to do. Whereas people who are used to being catered to, they'll change the channel. They'll unsubscribe from Disney Plus. They'll do whatever it is, you know, which I'm kind of like, wow, okay, way to stick to your principles. We can't always afford to do that. And so when the church will say like, no, there's a place for you here or like, you know, no, we're, we're nice. We're welcoming. We understand that we don't know everything. Come join us. It makes it hard for people who are newly out. It makes it hard for allies to step away, to leave. Because they're like, no, I can stay and I can make a difference, even though the people at the top have no real interest in making a change. And I'm real. I apologize if that's too cynical of a take to make, but I actually think that's going to be the quote for our Instagram. I think that you just hit on something that is really powerful for all of us. I watched Colette just mouth wow as you were saying that because yeah that's we feel that it's hard because it's like people want to have faith in change being possible and they want to be able to help be part of that change i think that's why a lot of queer mormons stay active longer than they should because they're trying not and i sorry i don't mean to say everyone should leave or anything like that but on a personal level it's you're like i want to be a good example i want the cis headset church to see me and know that i'm here and i'm a good person and i also want all the other gay people who might be closeted to see me and so i can show them that it's okay or whatever and it's so easy to get burnt out because you're just trying to be a good example for everybody and you don't take the time that you need for yourself and that's something i think i we need to be more aware of is just when we are becoming burnt out and when it's like if this is being more harmful to me than helpful. It's not selfish to say I need a break. And maybe that break will be permanent, but maybe it won't. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Here's the therapist part of me coming out saying, yeah, take care of your mental health. (laughs) Do what you need to do. There is no shame. And as I like to remind people, I remember I had a mind blowing moment once when my therapist was like, you know, you can change your mind. And I was like, what? (laughs) (laughs) Because I feel like for some reason, there's this black and white nature sometimes for people of I've got to make a decision and whatever decision I make, I've got to stick with it the rest of my life. But you can make the decision to step away now and come back later. You can stay now and leave later. You can do any random combination of whatever. But the most important thing right now is to make sure that you're doing what you need right now for your mental health in regards to this. So thank you for that. Oh, thank you for elucidating on the importance of that. And that's actually what I really like about affirmation is even though it's part of what makes it difficult is the attempt to be a big tent and just say, no matter where you are on your journey, you know, we want to be able to help. So, you you know, one year you might come in one way and by the next conference, you may feel totally differently. And it's something I, I try to help parents and like allies be prepared for. It's maybe you feel comfortable here now because your kid said, I'm going to stay in the church, I'm going to be celibate, or I'm going to do this, or I'm going to date Chasely or whatever. And so therefore, you accept it. But it's like, you need to be ready for the possibility that they might not feel that way tomorrow, they might not feel that way two years from now. And are you going to be open to growing with them? Because I've had that experience of friends who said, Yeah, oh my gosh, my parents were so accepting when I came out. But then when they start to date, it suddenly it changes things. It's like, Oh, this isn't quite what I was hoping. And that's sad. That's sad to see. 
Absolutely. I mentioned that you spoke alongside Tom Christofferson, who I feel like is a great example of this, that we're going to we're going to promote and build up somebody who's making one decision one day and a different decision the next day. And it's because he's at a different place in his life. And I feel like all of us can understand that. All of us know what it's like to move through this process. Yeah. And it's hard when certain voices do get amplified by the church. When I was a kid, I never could have imagined an apostle's brother writing a Deseret book about being gay. And so even though I was wary of that book, because I knew it was going to get weaponized by some people, I also knew like, okay, but it is also going to help a lot of people. And like, that's kind of this permanent pull, like of tension of being in that middle of the queer and Mormon Venn diagram. It's just, there's not really a one size fits all. And it's very easy for ex-members, including allies to just be like, why don't they leave? Like, It really hurts every time I see that happen about stories about queer BYU students. It's sort of like, well, why are they there in the first place? Like, And you have people on every side of every aisle yelling that question. The old conservatives being like, they should give up that spot to somebody who deserves to be there or would follow the rules. They knew what they were getting into. And then you have the people extremely on the left just being like, why would they go there in the first place? You know, like, you dumbass. And it's so just condescending and cruel. And if you've never been Mormon, I get I could understand being like, why would they go? It's hard when you don't know until you get there. Or it's hard if that's the only place you can afford to go to school or whatever it is. Or again, when you're trapped in that sort of not trapped, but you're in that post coming out bubble of like, I'm going to make a difference, possibly to the detriment of my own mental health, I can stay and be part of the change. And what I eventually realized was like, Because shortly after I really started coming out was when the 2015 proclamation happened. So that was like a huge (laughs) dip in enthusiasm. It was like two months after the first affirmation conference I went to. And so many incredible people I met there. Like, I've never seen it anything affirmation related since. Because it was just the ultimate betrayal. Like, we were... People were just high on the excitement of the same-sex marriage legalization and all this stuff. And it just was hard not to feel like, what's the what's the point of this? This kind of stuff is going to keep happening. And, and at that point, I thought, nope, I'm here. I'm robust. I'm ready. I just came out like I can do this. And I understand there are people who are weary and tired and want to be done. And I want them to rest. I want them to be done. Like they, if that's what they want. I'm here. I'm queer. I can pick up the shovel or the sword or whatever you want to use and it took me a while to realize it's okay for me to want to step down eventually too like it's because there's always going to be people there to pick up that fight whatever the fight is or looks like you know there's always going to be queer mormons coming out at every age and they're going to want to do the work that you've already been doing so it's okay for you to step down from that advocacy or that intensity because it's never going to go, it'll never go away. And I find that inspiring. (laughs) I find that inspiring too. And I also think you're pointing out something that's really problematic um, across the board that it's, it seems to always come down to the decision of the queer person. Like, why are you doing this? Why don't you make a different choice and not on the system or the larger institution to say, I'm sorry that the institution or the church or whatever it is, 
is making it impossible for you to be, make a choice that makes you happy. This is a concern that I have that so often that blame is put on the queer person that's just in an impossible situation. It's very victim blaming. But you just reminded me of something, Colette, this is not a, a queer movie, unfortunately, to talk about, but it it was one of an experience I had where I was watching a movie not anticipating it to trigger thoughts of this at all. And it did, which was Promising Young Woman, which came out a couple of years ago, which is about rape culture and more largely asks about what does accountability look like? What does forgiveness look like? How do we reconcile all of these things? And I think and Mormonism and queerness was on my mind because the night before I had a phone call with an old bishop of mine and he asked me, if the church tomorrow like said gay marriage was okay, do you think gay people would come back to the church? And he was honestly just curious, like he wasn't trying to get a certain answer out of me. And I just, I said, no, people who maybe are very newly out or people who are still really devout, some would, but by and large, no, because two things would have to happen that will never happen. The leaders of the church need to acknowledge the pain and the suffering that they caused and they need to repent publicly for it. Because without that, you don't get any closure. And it's hard to forgive when there's no closure. There's, and it's impossible to come back. And the, this movie was kind of all about that, of the excuses that people will make, anything to deflect blame or self-reflection, which just brought to mind these ideas of like Mormons or bishops or whomever being like, no, 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 you're welcome here. It's okay. Like, just don't be too gay or whatever. And this bishop was the reason why my relationship with the church was never really corrosive because he had been supportive of me when I came out. And I was like, that's important. Not everybody has that. <laughs> a lot of, a lot of people yeah. don't have that, but it was like that those initial reactions are so critical. And I don't think people always realize the power they have in how they react to, to things or even how they apologize or acknowledge instead of turning it around and being like, why are you there? Why are you here? Why are you making that decision? It's like, do some self-reflection. It's uncomfortable. Nobody likes to realize they've been a prejudiced or whatever it is, but how are we going to grow if we don't acknowledge those uncomfortable things? A lot of really good stuff. Thank you. I'm just sitting here soaking it in. <laughs> Well, can we talk like where you're at now? Because you're in New York, you're back in this area where you grew up and you're, you, I know that you've gone to your ward house before. What is that bringing up for you? I wish uh, I would love to go a little more often. I COVID for a long time, maybe not want to, you know, go to a public, go to spaces like that. And frankly, the church culture's handling of COVID just made me be like, I'm done with Mormons. But yeah, the first like virtual affirmation conference that we had, I told the family in our ward about it because I knew they had a, a daughter who was a, a lesbian, a teenager, and she was extremely vocal about it at church, which like blew my mind. And her mom was kind enough to tell me that her daughter had paid attention to me when I would come out at church because I did out myself a couple of times over the podium with the encouragement of a young woman's leader who was the first person I came out to actually and she was very like oh my gosh you should tell people in the ward like this would be really good for them to know and to understand and uh, I've never had anybody to my face say 
anything homophobic. I have, I did get a couple of messages from old friends that were hurtful and sad, but everybody in person was pretty okay. I have gotten a little bit of that attitude of you don't really need to talk about it a ton. Like it doesn't need to be like everything. And I said to the guy, like, I'll stop making a big deal out of it when the church does. I would be happy for this not to be a big deal, but that's, you know, and it's not like there's a Sunday school class on tithing and I'm like, as a gay person, I shouldn't have to pay tithing. (laughs) I'll bring it up when it's relevant. But that's the thing is like, it is often relevant. It's always relevant. Yeah. And I would love to do like a fifth Sunday or something to just talk to people. Like I loved our ally nights that we did in Long Beach. Those are really good experiences that I feel like I could be back open towards but shout out to michael seacrest by the way and scotty osborne for putting those together because that was a lot of work on their part and it was those were pretty incredible they were great they were often difficult but always worth it and my grad school advisor she called me a cultural translator as I told her, I was like, I feel like I'm still fluent enough in Mormonism that I can help. But she's also the one who, when a longer teaching post became available at BYU, and I was unhappy with work and whatever, and I was like, oh, this would be an easy job, and I know that I could get it. But then I would have to do, deal with the honor code. And I asked for her advice, and she just said, that's medieval. Don't do that to yourself. And it was just amazing to hear somebody just call it out so immediately for what it was. <laughs> it's just like... Well, that is kind of messed up. I don't need to uh, subject myself to that, so I won't. So it's been really great to finally have a start a new job here and like be able to just openly be queer and not have it be a big deal. Like it's really not be able to talk to coworkers just casually, like oh, you know, and like, including older ones. And I don't have to worry. Like I mean, I don't know. Maybe I work with some homophobes. I don't know. But like it's not like my preoccupying thought, and I can just be casually, openly myself and that's so it's just nice and I hate that Bednar talk where he's like people choose to be offended because I don't get offended anymore I'm like I get pissed off like that's (laughs) and you're gonna have to deal with me sounding off about it you know because there's a difference and the ally nights were a great example of this where like straight people who wanted to and cis people who wanted to get to know more about kind of the queer Mormon experience would just come and listen and ask questions and Michael, who organized them, was sensitive to the fact that there are a lot of queer people who wouldn't want to be in spaces like that because it's prioritizing kind of the feelings of these other people. But and and that's why it got hard sometimes because really insensitive things would be said or asked. But I realized for the most part, like these are good faith questions. Mm -hmm. And I can tell the difference between somebody trying to pick a fight with me and somebody who just genuinely doesn't know and is trying to learn more. So I really relish those opportunities when I'm in a place to be able to have that. (laughs) And I also relish being sound enough of mine now to be like, I don't want to deal with that right now. I'm just not going to, I know that somebody else deal with this problem. I can let somebody else answer that question because I don't have to. It was very freeing. (laughs) Yep. Well, is there anything else that you wanted to talk about or that we haven't asked you that we should have? Oh my gosh, I've already talked your ears off. I will just share one quote, because when I had my first coming out experience, or my first experience coming out to at least a religious leader, this bishop of my home ward who I had known forever, he was very considerate, and he mostly listened instead of talked at me, and acknowledged that the church was 
not maybe going to be the healthiest place for me to be. But he said, our ward will always be happy to have you here. And I hope that no matter where you decide to go in life, I hope that the church can be a source of comfort or help in some way. Unfortunately, it's usually not anymore. (laughs) But it was a very gracious attempt to help me try to find the baby in the bathwater and not throw it all out. And the most beautiful baby I can think of from all that is Chieko Okazaki, who I only came to know through the queer community. I had never heard of her until like affirmation. And Sister Okazaki is one of those people who is just like, oh my gosh, if she could have been the prophet, like imagine how different the church would be. But I just always love to share this quote of hers that really touched me and resonated with me deeply, where she said, part of our spiritual independence is simply shaking off wrongful messages about who we are. We get them from people who don't know us, but who judge us, from people who restrict us from being who we are. And that's kind of part of the hard journey of coming out as queer in the church. It's just like you are filled with these notions from as soon as you can think, like you are pumped in, and especially people our age and older, it's not just the church, it's the culture at large filling you with these wrongful messages about how you should be, who you should love, how you should love, what that love should manifest itself as. And it just restricts you. And like we have compounded years of that, of having these notions programmed into us about how we don't fit or how we're wrong or how we're evil just for having these feelings we didn't even ask for. And so that shaking off those wrongful messages is hard and it takes a lot of time and it it can be really scary (laughs) at the outset really, really intimidating, but it has absolutely been the biggest blessing of my life. And I look at myself in the closet and it just feels like a a, a lifetime ago. And I've had people, and Kate, apparently you are one of them, like people who were like, oh my gosh, you're so confident and you're so out. And like, I had a couple of friends tell me, you know, I can never, I'm never going to be like that. And I just think I used to be just like that. I used to see these people sharing their stories and thinking, oh my gosh, like I'll never be that confident. I'll never be able to be that out. And, you know, it takes some of us longer than others for various reasons, but I'm a big proponent of if you can see it, you can be it. And it might not be as fast as we'd like, but hang in there. And that's part of why I'm just so grateful for this, again, this podcast that you guys are putting out and the transcripts that you put out, because these would, this would have been absolutely a life-changing thing for me a few years ago and I know it's changing lives for people right now absolutely all all wherever your listeners are all over the world like this is life-saving life-changing work that you are doing and I'm so grateful to have had the chance to come talk to you guys (laughs) wow Chelsea and we're grateful for you for being willing to come on and share this sure we host the podcast but it's our guests that bring the magic (laughs) so thank you so much Oh my goodness. And what a great note to end on. Everyone should go read and get to know Chieko a little bit more. I, I wish I had been older when she was actually saying things instead of going back and reading her words now that she's passed. But so like that's the gospel I can get behind. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Beautiful stuff. I have six of her books still. <laughs> Love it. Anyway. <laughs> Thank you both. Thank you, Chelsea. Thank you for 
being open and honest with us and showing us, I think that you've shown a path, you've paved a way to figure out how to navigate the space of in-betweenness. I think this has been an hour of figuring out how to navigate that in a really healthy way. So thank you for modeling that for us. Oh my goodness. That's very kind of you to say. Thanks for listening. We appreciate you joining us today. If you're liking these episodes, we'd love it if you would rate and review Call to Queer on the podcast player of your choice so that other people are more likely to find us. We'd also love it if you would share our podcast with a friend who could benefit from hearing these stories. If you want to contact us, you can reach us at hello at calledtoqueer.com. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Call to Queer. See you next time. <laughs>